0: Hi, this is Malia Warner. Welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. Hi, everybody. How was your week? Did you get all of your chitlins back in school? This was the first week of school for us. So my three boys that are still at home are all in three different schools. I have one high schooler and one in junior high and one in elementary. And then we moved well, we didn't move. My oldest two moved back to college. They're going to the same school in Southern Utah. So they packed all of their things together, fit it in one car, which was pretty miraculous and went on their way. And it's crazy. It's insane. This mothering gig, it's just... I just got used to having them all home again. Like if they could either go away and stay away or come home and stay home, but this going and coming, I mean, how am I supposed to get my groove here, people? Mothering, you just get it figured out and then it changes. You just get it figured out and then you get them home for summer and then you just get that figured out and then they go to school. What is that saying? It's making me think about the only thing you can count on in mothering is change. So I don't know about you, but this week I'm definitely feeling off kilter. I'm just kind of wobbling, struggling to find my balance. I guess I better go back and listen to my own balance episode because the goal isn't balance, right? It's feeling the imbalance. It's struggling to maintain the balance that strengthens our muscles, that strengthens my core. So I better have like a six pack of abs because I am really struggling to find my core right now. It's emotional. I've been in an emotional funk this week. It's exciting. I've been excited to have some quiet time to myself. And you would think that I would have had so much more time this week to work on writing and podcasting, right? Oh, not at all, because I have an apricot tree. Actually, it's not even my apricot tree. It's not even in my yard, but it's in the field behind my yard. And so it's not really in anybody else's yard. And I grew up that you just don't waste food. And this apricot tree is gangbuster. I've never seen so much fruit on a tree before. And we have picked and not even made a dent. And we have picked again and not even made a dent. So this week we finally went out. We put my ninth grader in the tree and put a tarp underneath and just shook 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 and shook The fruit out of the tree and then sorted it all and boxed it. And I have apricots to feed the world. So if you would like apricots to munch on or to make into jam or fruit leather or whatever it else is that you do with apricots, message me, let me know, find me on Facebook, reply to the email that you get and I'll bring them to your house. They are certainly yummy and delicious, but There's only so many apricots you can eat. Anyway, lots of information you probably aren't even interested in hearing. I'm chatty today. I'm used to a summer of everyone talking to me all day long. So I guess after two full days of silence, I'm ready to ramble on. So anyway, enough of all that. On to Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 10. This is Episode 32, Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 10. I loved Tanner so much already. My heart had sprung wings, which reached out and engulfed him the first moment he was placed in my arms. How is it possible that I could be filled with euphoria and regret at the same time? Why did I cave in and come to the hospital? If I had just held out a little longer, I wouldn't have missed Easter Sunday with my family. And I wouldn't have been the reason Aaron spent his holiday stiff and bored in a hospital chair. My own doctor, Dr. Woods, would have delivered me. I'd heard he was expert at helping women stretch slowly so they didn't need an episiotomy. Now, because I couldn't hold on a little longer, I had stitches belly button to back, which, as soon as I got out of these mesh hospital underwear, would rub and irritate with the seam of any pants I wore. I'd been a mother long enough at this point to understand acutely that the very movements required to care for a baby are the exact motions that exacerbate the incision site of an episiotomy. What is that cruel irony, Mother Nature? I could feel every stitch as I swung my legs off the hospital bed to lift Tanner out of the bassinet. Next to the bassinet, I saw a folder and opened it to find a page of information. What is this? I asked Laya. Those are all of the steps for a perfect pregnancy and childbirth. I read through the list of criteria. Number one, go to the hospital at the right time, when the contractions are real and will not go away. Number two, no doctor cheats, no medical interventions such as pitocin or water breaking. Number three, natural childbirth, no epidural. Number four, stretch naturally, no episiotomy. And number five, deliver a baby that weighs at least seven pounds that you have carried full term, 40 weeks. Tanner was healthy, but tiny. Six pounds, 11 ounces. I needed to know something important from Laya. So if I meet all of this criteria, then I won't have this feeling of regret I have now? Absolutely, Laya assured. You feel regret because of all of the things you did wrong. If you don't do anything wrong, logically, you won't feel any regret. I folded the paper and slipped it under the straps of my nursing bra, where I would carry it every day and feel it rub against my heart. This contraction turns and twists and yanks and presses so hard. My eyes fill with tears so full, I completely miss the sign that reads Tucson 30 miles. I might still have time. If I call Aaron right now, he could probably get to Tucson in time to see his baby born. I just wish I knew if these contractions are the real thing or if they're going to go away. I don't like my options. Either I call Aaron and deliver in the Tucson hospital with him there, or I don't call Aaron and hope these contractions go away, but if they don't, then I end up delivering at the Tucson hospital without Aaron there. I don't really know anything about Tucson, but I imagine it to be an old western town, a hardy but well-worn remnant of the old west with cowboys, saloons, dance halls, and a wood-carved statue of an Apache warrior chief in front of the local mercantile. I imagine horses tied to a post in front of the barbershop and an old Wells Fargo wagon pulling up to the post office to pick up the outgoing mail. So what will the Tucson hospital be like? I assume there is a hospital in Tucson. I didn't look it up before coming. My decision between calling Aaron or betting these contractions will go away rests on two possible scenarios. In the first scenario, I call Aaron. You were right, I choke out. The baby is coming this weekend. You better meet me at the hospital. Loaded with resentment, Aaron scrambles to find a babysitter, apologizing profusely, and begins his long, solitary drive to Tucson following the tracks I burned only hours before. While he drives, I pull into the parking lot of the Tucson hospital. It's worse than I feared. There actually is a horse tied to a lamppost outside the emergency room doors, which are not automatic. All the while the admittance receptionist takes my information, I hear loud clunk-clunk sounds in the hallway. The nurse escorts me to a curtain bed in triage and hands me a threadbare hospital gown. While I change clothes, I discover the source of the clop-clop noise. Beneath the curtain, I can see doctors and attendants passing up and down outside. They are all wearing cowboy boots. I've known plenty of good men, including my own father, who wear cowboy boots and can deliver a baby cow, sheep, or horse. But they have different methods. My mind floods with images of traumatic births on the farm. Daisy's wide, brown eyes, frozen in panic as the emergency vet stabs a lengthy needle into her juggler vein. Blood sprays with the pulse of each heartbeat. I see a breech calf pulled out by chains tied from its legs to a tractor. At last, the calf comes out, hard, blue, and dead, Chains, tractors, and giant needles in the jugular vein, this is my image of how men in cowboy boots handle delivery. Cattlemen have other tasks to see to. There's no time for hem or mulling over decisions. You just have to get the job done. Many of our calves were born in leafy piles of alfalfa, but the troubled births happened on the cold slab of concrete next to our mudshed under a rusty spotlight. I feel safe betting that the Tucson hospital doesn't have a Bose sound system and jetted tub in every room. I bet the cowboy doctor in Tucson doesn't have a fancy tool and procedure called an amniotomy for breaking a woman's bags of water. He probably uses a crochet hook. No, he probably just grabs a rusty piece of barbed wire. If I call Aaron, I can see exactly what will happen. He will arrive, and these raging contractions will have completely stopped. He will sit in a stiff wooden chair, peeling at the yellow paint that is cracking off the walls, chewing at the nail on his ring finger while once again we have to decide what to do. I'll want to drive back to Sun City West, to my own Dr. Woods, to the Bose sound system and the jetted tub. But the cowboy doctor will say, you can leave and you'll have this baby in the car on the way or I can jab this here piece of wire fence into you and the baby will be born within the hour right after I leave to go have a drink of Cadbury egg flavored whiskey at the saloon. And for some reason, Aaron will agree with the doctor. We have a babysitter and I drove all this way. Let's get the baby here. Then in my daydream, cowboy doctor breaks my water and as he leaves the hospital room, offers to buy Aaron a drink and Aaron agrees and they leave me alone in the Tucson hospital with the peeling yellow paint and the clop-clop of cowboy boots all around, which is absurd because Aaron's never had a drink of alcohol in his life. But in my daydream, I know this is exactly what Aaron will do, and I am furious. Men. I throw the phone. I am not calling Aaron. I could turn around and go back and try to make it to the Sun City Hospital. Then, in my mind, I see the jetted tub. I see my relaxed belly and hours of hospital prison tortured by televised evangelism. I press the gas pedal to the floor and keep driving." Many parents will agree that three is the hardest number of children. We adored Tanner, but adding the third child threw us completely off balance. For several months after bringing Tanner home from the hospital, we struggled to find our groove. "'I've got Danny,' Erin would say taking Danny by the hand when we'd arrive at a baseball game, a neighborhood swim party, or a church barbecue. I'd hoist Tanner's car seat with two hands and balance the overflowing diaper bag on my shoulder. Erin would look at me, I would look at Erin, and then we'd both look at Kate, who was poised ready to sprint away the second one of us unbuckled her safety belt. I've got Danny and Kate, Erin would concede. With two parents and three kids, there always seemed to be one child left unattended. It used to be that I would cut Kate's meat and Erin would help Danny, Now, during dinner, I sat on the couch nursing Tanner. Kate, why aren't you eating? Aaron chastised. Kate looked up shyly. Nobody cut my meat. The worst was the day we drove out of the neighborhood. I knew something felt off. Go back! I reached to open the car door while the car was still moving. I left Tanner! I unlocked the front door and came out carrying Tanner's car seat. He'd been buckled in and was waiting on the living room floor to be carried to the car. We carried on like this, completely off-kilter, until a miraculous thing happened in July. Anise and Calvin went to Hawaii and left their three kids with us. We became parents to six kids under the age of nine. Anise showed up one week later with a gorgeous tan. I hadn't brushed my own teeth in seven days. Going from six kids back to three seemed to reboot our system, and Aaron and I found a good rhythm balancing our own Danny, Kate, and Tanner. Tanner was an easy baby, and after a few months, I began feeling, once again, that being a mother wasn't enough. Aaron had decided to go back to night school to get his certified financial planner. I wanted something to do, too, for me, to prove I had brains and ability. One afternoon, Aaron came home with the perfect offer. Bob, who owned a magazine that Aaron advertised in, was looking for a part-time salesperson and help writing articles. I thought it would be the perfect outlet for me, a way to keep my intellect sharpened and get out of the house a few hours a day. Do you think I'll be able to handle the schedule? I asked Lia. If Aaron brought it up, he must think that you can do it, she replied. After a few months, it was obvious the job situation wasn't working. By the time I buckled three kids into my car, dropped them off to three different locations, and drove 20 minutes to the sales area. I had exactly 40 minutes to contact business clients before it was time to pick up Danny from preschool. You're always the last mom here, Danny would say, the sweat dripping down his face from waiting outside for me. One night, in bed, I leaned up on one elbow and told Aaron, I need to quit my job. I hoped he would say, I agree. I don't know how you keep up with three kids working in the morning and teaching piano lessons in the afternoon. Instead, he said, why? It's too much. I'm always late to pick up Danny. Tanner doesn't get a good nap in the morning, and the money I make barely covers Kate's babysitter. The kids are cranky. When I started working for the magazine, Tanner stopped sleeping through the night. I don't think he's getting enough milk. I'm tired. I'm falling asleep during piano lessons. It's only a few hours a week, Aaron said. By the time I get everyone dressed, out the door, buckled into the car, dropped off, and picked up again, it takes the whole morning. You're the one who wanted something productive to do, Aaron offered. It was a hard decision. I called Bob and told him the news. He said, I wondered how you kept it going so long. After that, I decided to slow down. Three kids took a lot of time. I needed to make a conscious effort not to overschedule myself, and I needed to learn to use the word no. In December, Aaron asked if we could have his client Christmas party at our house. No, I said. Why? He asked. Because our house only has secondhand furniture, and I have no idea what to cook for retired millionaires who have dined in the best restaurants around the world. It wouldn't have to be fancy, Aaron argued. I held my ground. The next day, while Aaron was at work, Laya followed me around as I picked up toys and reshelved our collection of children's books. Your house should be more nicely decorated. That's your job as a homemaker, and you should know how to cater fancy work dinners. Your husband should be able to bring his clients home anytime. A week after I declined hosting the client party, Aaron said, Let's drive to Utah for Christmas this year. No, I said again. Why? Because it's been four years since we stayed home for Christmas. I want to have our own family Christmas at our own house where we can open presents and play with toys all day and never change out of our pajamas. I want to relax and enjoy Tanner's first Christmas. You can relax in Utah, Aaron answered. I stood my ground. That spring, just when he had learned to walk, Tanner broke his leg on Anissa's trampoline. For a few days, he had to resort back to crawling, dragging the heavy cast behind him, making a scratching noise across the floor. But in no time, he relearned how to walk with the cast, and was back to chasing Danny and Kate around the house. Life after quitting my job with the magazine became much more manageable. Sure, life with three kids was busy, but it was doable. That spring was one of my favorite times. The kids and I played on the playground at the park. Fed breadcrumbs to the fish and ducks, went to library story hour, read hundreds of books, swam in the city pool. I kept the kids busy and entertained in the morning so they would relax and watch movies while I taught piano lessons in the afternoon. I kept the kids busy and entertained in the morning so they would relax and watch movies while I taught piano lessons. Before my students arrived, I made sure to start dinner and tidied the house so that when Aaron came home from work, the house was clean, Tanner was sleeping. Danny and Kate were contentedly playing, and dinner was in the oven. Life was good. The problem was, my life looked too easy. At night before bed, I would sit on the bathroom sink, washing my face and tweezing my eyebrows. Why doesn't Aaron appreciate how much work I do around the house? I asked Lya. No matter how hard I try, I feel like I always let him down. Laya sat on the wooden hamper box in the bathroom, buffing her toenails. He thinks you should be able to handle more, Lia explained. You can see in his eyes how frustrated he is with you. If it weren't against his religion, he would trade you in for a more capable wife. Am I not a capable wife? I asked Laya. You're okay, she replied. But really, Aaron thinks you could do more with your time. That summer, Aaron and I attended the formal awards banquet hosted by Goodwin Financial. You ready to go? Aaron called into the bathroom. I came out wearing a black cocktail dress. I had spent an hour styling my hair and was wearing extra makeup. "'Do you think this is fancy enough?' I fretted. Aaron nodded. "'You look beautiful. I am a lucky man.' "'I haven't worn heels this tall in a while.' I tipped my foot, displaying my toes. "'I am out of practice.' "'Well, we will have to get you back into practice by dancing.' Aaron took me in his arms and swung me around the bedroom." He twirled me under his arm, tilted me back, and kissed me. Congratulations, top producer, I looked up into his eyes. You've worked hard this year. You deserve it. He lifted me up and let go, the mood dropping. I hate that it's always about money, he said. When we arrived at the banquet hall, we found our names on the furthest back table. We were in the back of the room. We would have a long walk to the stage. I hoped my heels would hold up. We chatted with the other couples at our table over prime rib and shrimp. I kept shaking my arms to keep from getting sweat stains in my dress. I'd been to enough of these to know the routine. Aaron's company is big on families. When Aaron interviewed for the job, they interviewed me as well. So tradition is that to receive any award, broker and spouse walk to the stage and pose for a picture together. When the waiter brought out the chocolate mousse, the regional director stood at the microphone to present the awards. Is your chair broken? The man on Aaron's right asked, noticing him shift back and forth. No, I'm just fidgety, Aaron answered, embarrassed. Awards were given in order of sales production. When Aaron's name was announced, every person in the room would be able to guess almost exactly to the penny how much money Aaron had earned that year. He hated it. When each of the winners were called, they took their spouses by the hand and escorted them to the stage, where together, as husband and wife, they accepted their plaque and posed for the camera. It was a gesture that said, I couldn't have done this without my spouse. This award belongs to my better half more than it belongs to me. For our final awards, the MC announced, we are happy to introduce our five top producers. I took a drink and swished the water to clean my teeth. I took out my lipstick and brightened the color on my mouth. I fluffed the back of my hair and smoothed my bangs. I straightened my dress and prepared myself to walk in front of all these people without stumbling in my three-inch heels. Aaron Warner, the MC called into the microphone. I scooted my chair away from the table and stood up before I saw that Aaron was already halfway to the stage without me. His eyes were focused on the floor and he was practically jogging to the stage. A low sound of whispers and giggles rumbled through the room. Hearing the noise, Aaron stopped and looked up. The MC pointed. Aaron turned around, following the audience's hinting head gestures until he saw me slowly retaking my seat. He whacked his forehead. I waved for him to go on without me. The last thing I wanted now was to be put on display as the most forgettable woman of the night. For a few seconds, Aaron went back and forth, go to the stage or come back for me, go to the stage or come back for me, like a ball player caught in a pickle between first and second base. At last, he made a decision and came back for me. He walked behind me, using his hand in my back to steer me up the steps onto the stage. I leaned into Aaron and smiled for the camera, pretending that the water in my eyes were tears of laughter. Everyone in the room was laughing with us or at us, but my eyes were burning, I kept my head down as we walked off the stage, and instead of returning to my seat, exited quickly to the restroom. When I came back, Aaron apologized profusely. I am such a dork, he said, squeezing my knee. That night after Aaron fell asleep, I kept my eyes open and stared at the wall, listening to Lia. Aaron hardly knows you exist anymore. Nothing you do around here is newsworthy. You should be accomplishing something more worthwhile with your life. In that moment, I decided that saying no, while it made my life more enjoyable, was not worth it. A person has to be busy and work hard to be recognized, to be worthy of being on stage. I wasn't afraid of hard work. I knew how to stay busy. And while hard work and staying busy were exhausting, that would be much better than being invisible There had been a time when Aaron admired me, when he thought I was the most amazing woman in the world. But something had changed. I had become someone he didn't even want to be seen on stage with. In that moment, I decided, no matter how exhausted or stressed I felt, I would say yes to everything. I would travel for Christmas. I would go on weekend campouts. I would do business ideas. I would say yes to anything Aaron wanted or suggested. I would say yes to anything people expected from me. I would do anything, anything, just so Aaron wouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed to be seen with me, just a housewife. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening. Next week, we have chapter 11 and the last chapter in part one of Lies of the Magpie. Now you're wondering, you're asking me, will there be more? Yes, yes, I am going to continue recording chapters of Lies of the Magpie. I am also going to return to recording Power Principles. I'm going to give it the good old college try and see if I can get two episodes recorded and edited in one week, one chapter of Lies of the Magpie and a power principle. So the power principles will be the numbered episodes and the Lies of the Magpie chapters will just be bonus content that likely won't stay published on my website or listed in the podcast apps. Once the book is published, I honestly right now don't know exactly how that will work but it will work, right? We don't have to know 100% of how everything's going to turn out before moving forward. So that is the plan. I hope that you're getting something out of this book. If nothing else, at least some good laughs. And I have some really awesome power principles in store for you, my friends. So I will see you back here twice next week. Until then, stay well.